Hello and welcome to our chess webinar series for COVID-19. And it is my honor and pleasure to, to welcome Brian, Sherry and Casey to our webinar. And thank you everybody for joining us. We're going to be talking about coma, coma science. What does it all mean for COVID-19? Sedation practices, what have we learned and what, what, have we, what have we garnered and what are we gonna take forward? So without further ado, I'm going to ask our highly accomplished speakers to introduce themselves. So we shall start with you, Brian. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Neha, for the kind introduction. My name is Brian Edlow. I'm a, I'm a member of the Neurocritical Care Faculty at Mass General Hospital. Nice to meet all of you and looking forward to our discussion today. And Casey? Hi, my name is Casey Cable. I'm an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary Disease and Critical Care Medicine at VCU Health um, uh, Commonwealth uh, Systems here at, uh, in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome, and Sherry. Hello, hi, thank you, Neha, for this kind invitation. Uh, my name is Sherry Cho. Uh, I'm also a neurointensivist and I'm uh, an associate professor in critical care medicine and neurology and neurosurgery at the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome, and let's dive right in, Brian. So I wanted to ask you a few sets of questions to just set the stage. So let's first start with defining what is coma? And then what does coma science mean to you? So thank you for this important question. And I think it's, it's essential for us to be using a shared nomenclature and common definitions so that when we're communicating about our patients amongst each other and with families, we all have the same expectations and understanding of what these patients are facing. Just to go through the diagnostic categories that we typically use for this patient population, those with severe COVID who may have disorders of consciousness, either those undergoing sedation at the time or those who have not woken up after sedation is discontinued, we think of coma as a state of unarousable unawareness. So a comatose patient is one who will not open his or her eyes, will not wake up or become aroused, no matter what stimulus is administered, whether it's a verbal stimulus calling that patient's name or, or administering a noxious stimulus like a pinch, no matter what, that patient will not open his or her eyes and wake up. We also always test by opening the eyes for the patient in case there is an eyelid apraxia or a cranial nerve disorder, something that might prevent that patient opening his or her eyes, even if they're still aware. So just a tidbit to remember always to, to open the patient's eyelids to see if they're fixating or tracking you. Um, and I should mention parenthetically there, there are some reports of COVID-related Guillain-Barre syndrome, a syndrome that can cause that type of phenomenon. Um, and then as we think about the vegetative state, that is one in which a patient is awake, the eyes are open, and there might be some evidence of circadian sleep-wake cycles whereby a patient may keep the eyes open during the day and closed at night, but that patient remains unaware of self and of environment. So just like a comatose patient, a patient in the vegetative state is completely unaware. The only distinction is that a patient in the vegetative state can open his or her eyes. I should also mention here that uh, particularly in the European literature, the vegetative state is now being referred to as unarousable wakefulness syndrome. Uh, so there is a different term just to be aware of uh, when reading papers about this. Um, with regard to the minimally conscious state, which was defined by Joe Giacino and colleagues in 2002, the minimally conscious state is defined by subtle but reproducible evidence of awareness of self or environment. The first signs of emergence into the minimally conscious state are often localization to a noxious stimulus. So the examiner pinches the patient, the patient appropriately pushes the hand away 
an appropriate response to an environmental stimulus or gaze tracking with a mirror, or if you don't have a mirror, you can always put your, your phone in selfie mode and see if that patient tracks. There are actually studies showing that one's own gaze is a more potent stimulus than using your ID, or I was trying to use a $20 bill because money's supposed to have some emotional valence, but turns out that using a mirror or your phone in selfie mode is the most potent stimulus. And the minimally conscious state is a wide range. It includes a wide range of behaviors all the way up to simple command following, like showing a thumbs up, showing two fingers. Emerging out of the minimally conscious state is defined by one of two behaviors, either functional object use. You hand that patient a pencil and they go like this. You hand them a spoon, they put it up to their mouth or a comb, they put it to their hair or functionally accurate communication, appropriately answering yes or no questions, for example. So the moment the patient has functionally accurate communication or functional object use, they have emerged from a minimally conscious state. They are no longer in a disorder of consciousness. And so the DOC categorization includes coma, vegetative state, and minimally conscious state. Thank you, Brian, for really simplifying some very complex concepts and cannot emphasize enough speaking the same language and understanding literature and the context of that language is so important. Um, I don't know how many members in our audience and all the folks who will be listening to this webinar after its recording are familiar with coma science and how rapidly the field is evolving. So I was hoping you'd, you'd be able to shed some light on what is coma science and why should we all be aware, aware of what's happening in the field right now? Thank you for this important question. And I'll start with a to follow up on the big picture question that you asked, I'll start with a very practical, clinically relevant one. Why does it matter? Why do we need to get the diagnosis right in the ICU? Well, in the COVID literature, as we all know, things are rapidly evolving and we're still learning every day. But just to speak for a moment about the hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy literature, one could argue that's probably the most relevant literature to the COVID population because many of our patients have hypoxia or hypotension, even if they don't have an arrest. If you look at the hypoxic ischemic injury literature or the TBI literature, for example, you'll see that the diagnosis of the level of consciousness in the ICU has a profound impact on long-term recovery. So when we are sitting down to talk with families about goals of care and whether to continue or to withdraw life-sustaining therapy, it is essential that we have an accurate diagnosis of that patient's level of consciousness. Just to share a representative result with you, in the TBI literature, the moment that a patient transitions to a minimally conscious state, the moment that patient lo localizes to your pinch or tracks to a mirror, there is a fundamentally different outcome at one year post-injury. In fact, 10% of patients who recover to a minimally conscious state before they get to inpatient rehab and leave our ICUs, 10% of those patients will have zero disability at one year. Now, again, that's not the COVID population. We don't know the long-term natural history of COVID recovery, so we have to extrapolate from other types of brain injury. But I just quote those statistics to highlight why it's so important to detect those subtle signs of consciousness. Um, in the behavioral assessment, most of us are familiar with the Glasgow Coma Scale Evaluation. It was designed to be performed in 30 to 60 seconds, a rapid assessment of our patient's level of consciousness. If it's feasible to perform a more comprehensive behavioral evaluation, there's another technique called the Coma Recovery Scale Revised or the CRSR. That's the standard of care in the subacute and the chronic setting. 
The reason it's not often applied in the ICU is because it can take upwards of 30 to 45 minutes to perform. And many of our patients can't tolerate being off sedation for that long. But multiple studies have now shown that if you can perform that assessment, you are 40% more likely to detect signs of consciousness that are missed on a GCS style assessment. So from a behavioral standpoint, many of us are doing the GCS. If you can do the CRSR, that's preferable. Uh, I, I don't wanna take up too much of the time, so I don't wanna go into a lot of detail about MRI and EEG, but these are other modalities that are being studied uh, extensively in other forms of brain injury that cause DOC. The literature in the COVID population is relatively limited, and the reasons are, are you know, pretty obvious to all of us. This is a difficult patient population to, to, um, to transfer to the MRI scanner. A lot of them can't, can't tolerate a travel ventilator. They might not be stable enough from a hemodynamic standpoint to travel. Also from a safety risk standpoint to our staff, whether it's the nurses, MRI technicians, or respiratory therapists, uh, I don't know how it was at all of your hospitals, but it was very challenging for us to get MRIs done in this population. Nevertheless, there is some emerging literature that there is a constellation of findings that's common to patients with COVID-19 who have disorders of consciousness. I'm happy to talk about those findings in more detail uh, later in, in our discussion. And then from an EEG standpoint, certainly it's more feasible and safe to do at the bedside. Uh, you don't have the risk associated with traveling to a scanner, but there's actually been literature at, uh, actually published by some of our colleagues here at MGH looking at the utilization of EEG during the pandemic and at even the big academic medical centers, there were far fewer EEGs being performed. So we have precious few data to guide us as far as what the early prognostic biomarkers are. That being said, there are a couple of important statistics. With EEG, the early studies suggested that upwards of 90% of our patients had slowing or, or some type of abnormality on EEG. Epileptiform abnormalities were seen in upwards of 20% of patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19. These patients were at risk of having seizures, both clinical and subclinical, and early seizures in this population did predict worse long-term outcomes. But I wanna be very cautious here in saying that these were retrospective studies, these were studies that were not well controlled, um, the confidence intervals were large, and again, so few data sets have rigorously been acquired in this population, and this is really where uh, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Dr. Cable and Dr. Cho's talks. They, they've been some of the leaders in this area, really moving forward with inter international collaborations to build these types of robust data sets. But we just don't have enough to guide us yet as far as whether the behavioral assessment or the imaging or the electrophysiology is going to be most informative for prognosis at this point. Brian, some really, really important points about the resource uh, limitations and burdens and and understanding how to leverage our clinical assessments at the bedside, sometimes all the other techniques and uh, all the technological advancements that help us in the scientific realm may not always be available, accessible, and safe to perform in our patients who are very, very sick with COVID-19. And with that, I do want to ask Casey a follow-up question, very specifically about being an intensivist at the bedside, managing these really, really sick patients how did you change your practice uh, for managing their sedation for patients who were in mechanical ventilation? And how did that impact your assessment of their level of consciousness? No, I think that's a great question. And, no, I th and thank you, Brian, for kind of this nice lead in to, to, you know, a lot of research utilization, I think, came into play, especially early on when we didn't know what was going on. PPEs were potentially uh, an issue. And so was, you know, going into to 
see the patient as frequently as sometimes we wanted to. And so I think, I think um, sedation was definitely challenging in the beginning. And I think we've all, um, and there's been definitely some published literature recently that all highlight that you know, has shown that we, we took a step back into what we knew what was as best practices and for our sedated mechanically ventilated patients. And, you know, I think if we, if we look at kind of the pre-COVID time era, we were literally, we were really going in a positive direction, looking at lighter sedation, looking at when we talk about the, 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 the RAS scale, minus one, minus two, light sedation was better for our patients. It reduced mortality, reduced length of stay, reduced um, their, the delirium. Um, and so I think once again, we're really heading in, in the right direction, doing, you know, making sure that we are doing our, having appropriate, you know, daily, um, you know, kind of light, lighting up sedations and whatnot and protocolizing this. Well, COVID hit. And I think a lot of that, um, a lot of those practices changed. <laughs> and so I think we did sedate our patients more uh, with, with COVID. Now, I, I, I really, I think most of us really tried our best to, to adhere to the best guidelines and to adhere for best patient care, but things can get in the way. And so a lot of it was, you know, P, P, being able with our PPEs, being able to go into the room to assess our RAS scales and titrating um, some of those medications. Um, honestly, uh, sometimes running out of medications that we typically like to use, you know, the, a, a period of time, there's a propofol shortage. And so, you know, guidelines have been to against using uh, benzodiazepines, um, continuous drips for sedation, because those do have worse outcomes. And there was definitely an increase in the use of long acting, you know, benzodiazepine, I, you know, drips on, on our, on our patients. And so I think, you know, that was limited by, and, you know, oftentimes resources. And a lot of these patients were extremely sick. They're were, you know, progressing to severe ARDS. And so those patients did require, you know, medically induced comas um, for, um, you know, paralysis for a variety of pronings for, so for just the typical severe ARDS treatments that we do. So, you know, I think that can be confounding as well in terms of, you know, these, these patients and how sick they were ventilated asynchronies and whatnot. Um, I can go on and on. And so, you know, I think this um, COVID definitely and a pun and colleagues just published this year in over 2000 um, COVID-19 patients. I mean, I think it was an eye-opening study showing that more than like two thirds of our of, of their mechanically intubated um, COVID nineteen patients received benzodiazepines and were deeply sedated and had longer durations of being deeply sedated, and so with increased delirium. So the, the outcomes are, um, and I think I think uh, Sherry's going to speak to this. Um, you know the, the what. The effects of this, I think, are going to be long-reaching, but I do feel like now that we have a better understanding of the disease, now that vaccinations are coming out, where I think I think we're getting back to understanding of we need to go back to our you know um, standards of care, our best patient practices, and utilizing you know what we know for our sedation practices, um, keeping much lighter sedations, you know, having our patients. Um, you know, being more involved, more physical therapies um, coming in and, and really kind of focusing on, you know, honestly, the A to F bundle that, that we had cherished previously so well. And I think, you know, just given, given this pandemic, I think we got a little behind on, but I think, I think things are changing again. I hope that answers the question. No, absolutely. I think it summarizes uh, from wave to wave how we have learned and refined our practices and adapted the A to F bundle 
the SCCM also released their sort of adaptation to how we can make this happen despite being uh, our hospitals and health systems being overwhelmed. So how do we go back to what we know uh, and what has been learned well? Uh, specifically for patients who are on ECMO, um, Casey, what, what adaptations to your sedation practices did you have to make for COVID-19 patients at, from wave, wave one to wave I don't even know what number we're in now. Good question. So, I, so, so my institution, um, I actually don't take care of ECMO patients, um, but the literature has shown that during the pandemic, um, ECMO numbers, um, either VV or VA, had, has dra have drastically increased. And I feel um, myself and our colleagues, this is, I think, is a, an excellent route for, for future investigations. It's one of the things that we don't know. Um, I think this was a question even before the pandemic hit on sedation on ECMO. Still, I think the trend was, um, and there's some, been some retrospective studies and some other studies looking at that lighter sedation was feasible, and actually the same with physical therapy, was feasible um, even, even looking into the timing of you know, decannulation versus um, extubation. Um, so there's been some, I think this is a, this is a great, great point right now into what, what, uh, what questions can be, can be asked. So um, this, I, think, I feel like this, though the sedation practices, because these patients were so sick, um, placed on ECMO that, that fell in line with um, our typical mechanical ventilated COVID-19 patients that deeper sedation, um, going back to a heavier use of benzodiazepines and sometimes paralytics um, were, were utilized, you know, just given, you know, the risk of decannulation um, unnecessarily and, and, and whatnot. So I feel like, yes, that, that definitely, definitely did exist. But I, I feel like now that we think trends are going back towards what we were doing pre-COVID and looking at being more aggressive at lighter sedation, even in our ECMO, even in our ECMO patients, looking at, you know, at when earlier trials of SBTs um, and, you know, light, lighter sedation assessments. So I think that's where we're headed right now. Thank you, Casey. And with that, I, I want to pivot to Sherry for your experience, Sherry, in the midst of a pandemic leading uh, international collaborative. We've seen a tsunami of literature for COVID-19. It's been very, very hard to keep up with a lot of these things for neurological complications of COVID-19 and then trying to distinguish between the structural uh, causes for coma in patients with COVID-19, and then everything else that happens to these patients, including our sedation practices to the multi-organ failure, the, the problems with metabolizing some of the medications that we're using for these patients. So how, how do we, um, what have we learned about uh, distinguishing between uh, these different types of coma and disorders of consciousness in patients with COVID-19? Thank you, Neha, for this question. And I think you know, my short answer is, is that we've learned a tremendous amount, but not enough. And, and you know, <clears throat> and I would just go back and say that, you know, for all of us who've experienced um, this, this pandemic as, you know, as a clinician um, at the bedside, my personal feeling was that every week, every day I wake up, the, the world is a new world and something's changed, you know, the PPE supplied or the PPE protocol or the diagnostics that are available or not available, or simply just, you know, where we have beds to put in these patients. And, you know, at the same astronomical timescale are all these major massive clinical trials. So looking at COVID now compared to a year ago this time, 
we have many more things, many more therapeutics available to us. And I, I remember, you know, the moment when we just figured out, you know, you know, letting patients self-prone instead of, you know, intubating them. And that felt like a, an astronomical discovery because, oh, gee, you know, we can, we actually don't have to intubate them all. And, um, and, and so I think the, the landscape is still evolving extremely fast. And, you know, and I, you know, appreciate, you know, like the, the definitions that Brian has given is, is so important because I think, you know, at a time when everything is changing so rapidly, it's, it, it's very important for any of us who try to sort of collect data and do research and, and conclude something, anything accurately as, as much as we can in this sort of a, a, almost like a wartime uh, uh, situation, it is important to, to have definitions that people sort of commonly use that are easy to use, that don't take a lot of time. And, uh, but, but, you know, to make sure we all speak the same language on the one hand, and on the other hand, you know, as, as, you know, Casey has alluded to, you know, how we treat these patients have evolved really fast over time from sedation practices to, you know, how we, how we ventilate and oxygenate the, the most severely sick. And then in the middle of all this is, you know, what are the patients with coma and do they have coma because we sedated the heck out of them and, or do they have coma because we're not able to oxygenate them and they have severe hypoxic injury to critical parts of their brain? Or do they have coma because of another, you know, many other potential ways that COVID-19 disease can impact the brain either by directly invading the brain tissue or, you know, or, do, or by, you know, a slew of other mechanisms. So, you know, we, as, as Neha alluded to at the beginning, you know, of, of the pandemic here in the United States, we, started to launch a, a multi-center study to try to capture some of these neurological syndromes as best we can in a very pragmatic way. And this was March of 2020. So this is a time where um, I don't, you know, I don't know what, what everybody else remember, but um, many places have very limited testing. Um, so we didn't even know who had COVID. You can suspect but we may not be able to test them and we wouldn't get the test back for a very long time. And that's in hospitalized intubated patients. And, um, and this is a time where, you know, we couldn't figure out what the contagiousness of the disease is. So something as simple as sending a troponin becomes very complicated because if the tube has, you know, if the patient has COVID-19, you know, do you have a hood? Do you have PPEs for your lab staff? So we were operating um, without most of the diagnostics that we were familiar with. And so in that situation, how do you figure out if a patient is in coma because, because they had you know, an extraordinary reaction to a small dose of, you know, they just have prolonged reaction to your sedatives or they might be in status or they might have a basilar stroke or, you know, or they might be hypoxic. So all of those are possible. In the first report of from our consortium, which came out in May, we really described sort of a global look and the, and the approach we took was we understood that really the information, the only reliable information we can get from everyone is what the clinician sees at the bedside. And we can't require people have MRI scans or EEGs or, or even a blood test because you know, the centers are so heterogeneous. The, the resources are so different in different places. We're gonna actually, by requiring that, we'll introduce so much noise and so much confounding, it wouldn't be a fair look. So our first report was really just a clinical look 
and say, okay, of all the people who you're seeing right now who have COVID, of whom, how many of them clinically look like coma as Brian has described it, regardless of whether the patient's under sedation or not. And the clinician at the bedside can say, well, this patient was looked like coma when the patient was, on, was in sedation, but when we got them better, we lifted the sedation, they're no longer in coma, so I'm not gonna categorize this patient as having coma. And, and, that, and that is sort of the practical approach. We didn't ask for anything else. Now, of course, the patients who couldn't survive, right? So they're basically sedated until they eventually pass away. We were never known. They probably were categorized as coma positive. When we looked at what in our first report, we had about 3,000, just a, just a bit over 3,000 patients. Um, and, you know, a Mass General, Brian, where Brian has had, you know, contributed a large chunk of data to, to that analysis. And when we look at this chunk of patients, and these are not just ICU patients, these are all hospitalized patients with COVID. Um, and, we, and we looked at, look at patients with this practical definition, we saw that over 50% of the patients have some sort of encephalopathy or abnormality in sort of their sensorium. And, and a good number of, depending on which patient cohort we see, up to 17% reported um, were in the state of coma. Now, this is a very pragmatic definition. It's possible that these patients were intubated and sedated. What we did see, however, is we, we, we just took a look at this syndrome. So at any given time, if a clinician at the bedside decided that you meet qualifications for having coma syndrome, um, how does that impact your acute mortality? And we adjust it for the things that typically we would consider to be associated with COVID mortality, so your age, your sex, your you know, race and ethnicity. And we adjusted for regional differences in mortality between different centers. And after adjusting for all of that, having been diagnosed with a coma syndrome still independently increased your odds of dying by a huge amount in, co in patients who were hospitalized with COVID. So that tells us that these, having these neurological syndromes um, are important. It, it is important that we know which patients actually have a neurological syndrome. And, and until then, we can't think about potential ways to treat them and to potentially reverse this neurological injury. Incidentally, we looked at, you know, I, you know, I like to, in a, in a very, when we, I call it encephalopathy or some people call it coma light, you know, you're not quite comatose, but you're not quite normal. And it's a very, very pragmatic sort of bedside ER intensive care looks like it's the patient off. Yes. Okay. So if we can't, for the patients who met that criteria, which is about 50% of the entire hospitalized population that we analyzed, even just that increases your risk of dying acutely during hospitalization by more than fivefold. So it isn't, you know, having a neurological um, feature in the spectrum of your COVID disease is actually an important determinant of how well these patients do, at least, you know, from the part, from the time from about March to September of 2020, which is where our initial data of that initial first plus maybe some of the second wave um, came from. And then, you know, we're hoping to, to capture now the new, the, the new 2021, you know, the new reality now that we have medications, we sedate patients differently. We probably have different strategies for oxygenating and, and ventilating the, the most severe patients and so on. Now, let me stop. And I hope I answered your question there. 
Yes, you did. Uh, both Sherry and Casey, uh, you've alluded to how our practices have changed and how we have certainly gotten better at going back to our basics and adapting them as we take care of these patients. So as we're looking at some of these papers that are comparing different waves, and most of these papers are showing that mortality is improving, outcomes are improving. Some of this is also the effect of exactly what you described. Um, from this point on, as we move forward, and this question I'll pose to all three of you, uh, as we prepare for, this is not going to be the last pandemic in our own lifetimes, as we prepare for another pandemic, so that we don't make the same mistakes that we made with respect to the bedside diagnosis. And I'll, I'll specifically talk about patients with coma, disorders of consciousness and sedation practices. So the mistakes that we made and we learned from them and outcomes improved as we continue to learn. So how do we prepare ourselves and our teams uh, for the next pandemic better? So Brian, I'll start with you. Such an interesting and important question. I, I have a couple of thoughts and I'm curious to hear what the other panelists uh, think as well. So. As has already been mentioned, there were certain limitations early on with respect to availability of drugs, resources. Um, you know, if, if your hospitals run out of propofol and you have to put on a patient on a benzodiazepine and that leads to a longer lasting encephalopathy, there's, that's a problem that just can't really be fixed unless the supply line uh, changes in some way. So some of those um, logistical issues are outside clinicians' control. But one of the lessons that I will take away from this experience that I think is within our control or, or our purview as clinicians is having a little bit more prognostic humility and a little bit more of an acknowledgement of uncertainty when it comes to how we approach discussions with families about long-term prognosis and goals of care. And, and the reason I'm focusing again on this particular issue is because all of us were in the same boat. We were meeting with families where even in diseases that we treat more frequently, like cardiac arrest or TBI, there is always some prognostic uncertainty. But with COVID or with a new pandemic, as you mentioned in your question, there's going to be even greater uncertainty because we simply don't know the natural history. Um, already there have been comments about the multiple different mechanisms, whether it's direct invasion of the virus, inflammation, hypoxia, sedation, et cetera. There's so many factors here for us to consider. And for many ICU clinicians, it's certainly not all, but for many ICU clinicians, there was a sense that if a patient did not wake up within a few days, just to pick a broad range of cessation of sedation, then perhaps that patient had an injury that we may not fully understand it, its mechanisms and pathophysiology, but it appears to be a devastating injury. And perhaps that's a patient for whom life-sustaining therapy should not be continued. Now, of course, there's individual variation clinicians, families, patients. I'm, I'm not trying to overgeneralize here, but I think it's fair to say that all of us experienced to some degree patients for whom life-sustaining therapy was withdrawn, often due to the neurologic prognosis, not just multi-organ system failure, but rather because a patient wasn't waking up or recovering consciousness. But what is now being borne out in the literature, and the studies are small, so again, I want to acknowledge that these are small case series, wide confidence intervals, but we reported a case early on in the pandemic of somebody who didn't begin to follow commands until 40 days after cessation of sedation. There was a paper in neurology in late December of 2020, six patients where the range of recovery of consciousness was eight to 31 days after cessation of sedation. So 
Again, we don't understand the mechanisms of unconsciousness, much less the mechanisms of recovery in this population yet. But if a future pandemic, hopefully it doesn't occur, but as you pointed out, it's likely to occur. If a future pandemic is associated with a virus that causes respiratory disease, requiring intubation, long periods of sedation, I just wanna highlight, in my opinion, the importance of acknowledging that brain recovery can take place over a long period of time and whether it's the lingering effects of sedation or renal failure or liver failure, whatever it may be, the duration over which patients can recover appears to be far longer than many of us initially thought. And again, there's limited data here on natural, the natural history of recovery, but some of the emerging evidence suggests that these patients are having excellent cognitive and functional recoveries, not just recovering consciousness, but being functionally disabled. Um, so to me, that's, that, that's been the biggest lesson that I've taken away from this from a disorders of consciousness standpoint, uh, but I'm curious to hear what, uh, what Casey and Cherry uh, think. No, I'll jump onto that because I know I think, I think that's a really, really important point. And I think you're right, just um, having a new disease process and us just being as clinicians, just being able to be humbled and say, you know, sometimes we don't know. It's okay to say to family members, but I still think like you noted, having honest discussions with family members, we're not quite sure what, you know, what the prognosis is, what's going to happen. Um, but then I think you're right, you know, uh, for we have we have a lot of these goals of care discussions with family members or not even goals of care, more just understanding of what we think the process might look like. All we have to go on is what we know historically. And this is so novel that it's it, this is such a different process and being able to talk with family members and kind of walk them through, well, if a patient does have to get intubated, what sedation looks like. And this is pulling some of the questions from the audience of what do we talk to the patients and family members about of. Um, you know, what sedation looks like. And COVID-19 is, is an interesting disease process in, in the fact that for the most part, patients are fairly awake when we have intubation discussions with them. They're on high flow nasal cannula. They're, they're in maxed at 60 liters, 100%. They're still talking to me, but they're saturating 80, 85. And so it's, it's an interesting, and I know a lot of other um, critical care clinicians have had this interaction where we actually can talk to the patient and say, okay, well, and, and they, they can tell me it's time to intubate me. You're like, okay, it's, it's just such a different, because you know, it's such a different process. This hypoxia is so profound, but yet oftentimes they're still mentally aware and, and able to communicate with us, you know, before, you know, before we go down this intubation sedation route, but then we can talk with them and their family members often via, um, via iPhones and, and video chats about what, what sedation looks like, you know, what are the next steps going forward? And then uh, I don't know how, how, how honest clinicians sometimes get. Someone had mentioned in the chat about what if a patient refuses to be, um, you know, put into a coma or refuses to be, um, I think, perhaps, you know, go, go down the paralysis route. Well, that, that, in, that does, as we all know, get, that really gets into kind of the, the deep diving um, kind of crystal ball that we don't know can happen of, 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 you know, treatment of this. But, you know, I think that it would be an important conversation to potentially have of if we get to that point, then there, then, you know, at least from a respiratory standpoint, if we have to then in medically induce a coma, then we're tending towards a, um, a worse prognosis just from the, the organ lung system failure. But no, I do think it's fascinating that as, as Brian mentioned, some of these, these small, yet be it small, these, these, these reports and these studies are showing that, specifically in COVID-19, that recovery can occur um, mentally and it, it does take time. And so I think we need to then take a step back and say, well, okay, well, if there's no multi-system organ failure, the heart's okay, liver's okay, kidneys are still working. Maybe it's just a mental, once again, the 
comatose, but then there's a chance of recovery that maybe we do need to then, you know, continue with physical therapy, discuss trait, give these patients a, a, a chance to, to cognitively recover. JC, thank you for answering a couple of the audience uh, questions too, because that aspect of communication, particularly in the face of uncertainty, and I really liked uh, a phrase that Brian used, this, this prognostic humility, and using prognostic humility in the face of uncertainty, particularly when we're and we're talking about the next pandemic as, you know, on the heels of this uh, pandemic that hopefully is, is going to come to an end soon. Um, but making sure that we're very honest, open about our communication, that we don't become dogmatic while we go back to our basics, where we continue to adapt and rethink. So Sherry, there is a question that I will, uh, I will include, I will weave into your, uh, I would love for you to weave into your response to my, my question. So specifically for some of these international uh, differences in how coma is approached. Um, so have, have you begun to unravel some of those mysteries in GCS NeuroCOVID because you have such a large international representation? So one of our audience members asking about differences in practices for, for coma um, in uh, America, uh, Europe, um, and Asia. So thoughts about that. And then how do we learn for the next pandemic? That's a, that's a fantastic question and, and a big question. And thank you. And, and I want to thank, you know, Brian, Casey, I'm, you know, I just keep nodding here as you're making sort of one good point after another. And um, so, you know, from my perspective, I would just, uh, you know, take a step back and say, we're, we're beginning to try to look at sort of regional differences and, and, and variabilities and, and, but the one thing I think I sort of had a hunch, but maybe we learn now more through, you know, research, but through also just watching what happened all over the world, because this is a global pandemic. We're literally all affected. This is not just one country and we're sitting somewhere else watching it happen. You know, our, you know we're talking about sedation and propofol and ventilators and, and you know, supporting patients for 14 days it is really a luxury that we have here that a lot of that doesn't exist in many other places, um, even in sort of non-thermal regions. If they had, you know, when the pandemic hit really, really bad, when the when the healthcare system gets overwhelmed, um, that is a luxury that that many people didn't have. And so, you know, I would say going back, you know, I feel like. When I think about these questions, I often start to think, what's the lowest lying fruit? What's the easiest first win that we could we can tackle? Because we should just absolutely tackle those because it'd be a waste not to. And then, of course, in the meanwhile, we chase the bigger question of, you know, how does COVID cause coma? How do we recover from coma? Um, and and you know, the, in terms of international coma practice variations, I actually would. You know, I'll finish my answer, but I would I would probably direct that back to Brian, who who has probably a better view of you know what what the coma practice is over um, globally. Um, but but I will say that you know some of the things you know and as a you know as an intensivist and a neurologist and a vascular neurologist, I often think about my goal generally is try to prevent the brain injury because once the brain is injured, it's really difficult and it takes a long time to recover. So you know, a lot of what my approach is, is there anything that, you know, when you need to salvage the brain or resuscitate the brain, you need to do it fast because there's not a lot of time to play around. So, 
I would, I would say one of the things we learned from all the case reports and all the, and the, the data from GCS NeuroCOVID is that neurological syndromes actually are, are relatively common in COVID. And, you know, personally in my practice, I've definitely seen people who come in and when they, when they're brought in, if they're found down or they just sort of come in in extremis, we usually don't really, you don't have a clear diagnosis. You just have to stabilize them. And then, um, and then we find out, you know, they have a big basilar stroke or they're in status epilepticus. And some of these patients, some COVID patients come in like that. They don't necessarily come in with the cough, shortness of breath. And, you know, my, you know, my family member had COVID and now I can't breathe. And if, if we're, if we miss that cue, if we don't think about, oh, this could be, you know, there, these could be some of the common reasons that used to cause acute comatose state before we had this pandemic to, to sort of add another variable to our differential. Um, and if those pathways, if those emergent clinical pathways can still operate at its original efficiency, it took us a while before we can get there. But I would also say that it didn't take that long. I think most emergency processes, you know, the acute stroke protocols in most places picked up really quickly once the PPEs are ready. And so you know, the first thing I would say is try to prevent coma. And on that note, I would also say that on a bigger scale, um, you know, for all the people, the, the people who have, you know, suffered, maybe, you know, people, you know, as globally have had a hard time with the pandemic. And we, you know, recently, you know, a paper came out and said the incidence of overdose, narcotic overdose increased by 35%. It's a very common cause of cardiac arrest and coma where I practice. And some of these patients who come in are found down, they may be COVID positive, they may not be, um, but, but I would also consider that as a preventable coma. And, and, and it's a bigger discussion, it's not my expertise to say, how do we prevent that? But maybe to recognize that, that it's, it's a major problem, recognition would be the first step. And I think you know globally, how do we prevent, how do we prepare for the next pandemic um, you know, I, I would say we, this is a, this is a, this, this pandemic was something that none of us had ever simulated before, you know, in critical care medicine, we do a lot of sims. I don't know about you guys. I never simmed for this. And so this was a real time simulation, but at least now we've gone through it once. And, you know, so, and I think the key will be in my mind, how not to, how not to have our medical system and healthcare system overwhelmed. Because when that happens, people die. They die quickly, they, they die en masse. The, the things that we could use to offer people, the, the things that we used to know how to do, suddenly you can't do because you don't have the resources, you don't have the personnel, you just can't attend to this many patients, not to mention the ones who can't even get into the hospital. You know, one of the things I remember, you know, we have to happen at our center would be Whereas we used to be a big um, referral center, so anybody with coma or other sort of neurological critical issues, COVID positive or not, can get in. Once we started surging, our ability to take in transfers uh, for those conditions become limited. We quickly adapted and we, we, you know, we pivoted to telemedicine, to delivering help with telemedicine. That may be an opportunity, but I think I would first think about all the things we already know how to do. and think about how we can continue to carry on doing that. And in the meanwhile, we discover new signs. We, we learn new things about coma and disorder of consciousness or even encephalopathy or how, how you know, a disease, a respiratory contagion like SARS-CoV-2 
you know, can impact the neurological system the way it is. Did I answer your question? Yes, you absolutely did. It was a it was a very very broad uh, question, seeking to really hit upon a lot of things. But all three of you did an awesome job. So, um, Brian, I'm going to ask you a little bit about prognostication. You mentioned something very interesting. You said uh, one of the one of the case reports that you mentioned, a patient woke up after 40 days. How long should should people wait to prognosticate as other organs? Our uh, organ systems are getting better. How long is too long and how long is too short? This might be a question where I have to just give a simple answer. I don't know. I really don't. I don't think, I don't think any of us do. If anybody does, please jump in. Cause, and, and I don't mean to, um, in my prior answer, I don't mean to suggest that every patient with a disorder of consciousness should be given weeks or months if, if, that patient's loved ones don't believe that they would want to go through that or that even the best case scenario for neurologic outcome would be a quality of life unacceptable to them. But that's a fundamental problem. We often don't know what the best case scenario is. And so, you know, we're learning case report by case report. Uh, Right now, it looks like a meaningful neurologic recovery is possible even after a few weeks, if not a month of unconsciousness. Now, at some resource-limited hospital settings, it simply may not be possible for everybody who is in this state to be supported in this way for a month. So I I don't want to seem unrealistic here. I realize that it it may place undue burdens upon the medical system to provide that lengthy duration of care, of supportive care for for every single patient. But these are individual discussions between the clinician, the family. I realize I'm not answering your question, but it's because I honestly don't know what the answer is. I don't think anybody does. Now, this goes back to what you mentioned about prognostic humility and what Casey mentioned about being honest and open about the process, about sharing what the process could look like. And does somebody want to go through that? Would somebody want to go through that process knowing that at the end of this process, we don't know what's going to happen? And some people are very clear in their, in their minds about what they would be okay with. Uh, and what would not be okay. And oftentimes, uh, Casey, going to you about having these discussions with families in the midst of a global pandemic, uh, specifically about what sedation is going to look like. And when somebody's sedated and paralyzed, we had uh, quite a few questions about sedation and paralysis and can people feel pain when they are sedated and paralyzed? And what does it mean? And how do you communicate that to, uh, to families and even the patient who's about to get intubated? How do you do that? No, exactly. And so, you know, sedation and analgesia, pain control, you know, is uh, they're, they're two different things. Often some of the medications that we utilize, um, there are some overlapping on some of them, uh, some of their qualities, but, uh, but, but yes, no, we definitely, patients that are sedated can also feel pain. And, and we try to treat that accordingly. I mean, there's a, there's a variety of, of, of clinical signs and symptoms that we can, um, you know, that, that we, uh, or kind of a secondary, uh, let us know the patient might be in pain different. Once again, that's a whole nother discussion of heart rates and kind of grimacing and whatnot. So yes, there are, we definitely do treat pain when patients are sedated and discussing, you know, how long patients uh, are, are, do we, do we have to paralyze and then put them into a medically induced coma state? Um, you know, I think that's a different discussion than having a patient that is potentially as we having comatose from, or being, being in a coma from, you know, from COVID-19 is a separate process. And so I think, I think with COVID-19 and, and I would love to get their opinions as well. I think that's just confounding things 
that we know that whenever we do have to, patients are in severe ARDS, ventilator dyssynchrony or still hypoxic, that yes, that is one of our you know, potential, potential ways to treat them is to paralyze prone and that does require deep, you know, deep sedation coma, um, you know, until hopefully we can, and we do see improvement, we hope, you know, until that, that until their, their hypoxia improves to a safe, safe point. And then we definitely, we try to, we don't keep them paralyzed as long as we need to. That is, def, that is an absolute in medicine. And then, and then it becomes kind of a gray zone If these patients are that if, if COVID-19 affected their lungs to this extent, you can't imagine that it also did not affect their brain to a certain level as well. And so I think that's them when we ask our, our neurology and our neuroICU colleagues, once again, to kind of help EEGs to make sure that they're not in any sort of status or any, or MRIs to make sure that there aren't any sort of uh, you know, strokes that have also occurred secondary to a variety of things that we do. A lot of our patients um, are hypercoagulable in COVID-19, are placed on anticoagulation, and this will not be the first time that I've seen um, hemorrhagic strokes in COVID-19 patients, and I'm sure Sherry and Brian have as well, and so there's just so much, there's so many interlocking pieces. Um, but but going back, I do feel like if this were to all happen again, protocols. Now we have protocols for patients going down into the MRI scanner that you know, that are on respiratory precaution or droplet precautions, you know, having, knowing that we now have much better um, sedation and paralysis plans in these patients that we have limited PPEs on to try to reduce, you know, as much sedation or paralysis need as possible. So, so it can be, it, it's definitely, COVID-19 has definitely clouded a lot of, a lot of the coma picture, I'll say that. You know, if I may, and, you know, just as Brian was speaking and, and Casey, you, you touched up on it, you know, thinking about, you know, even before COVID, we've had cases where, you know, we've had these severely sick multi-system failure ARDS patients who are prone paralyzed for, you know, weeks, couple, at least a couple of weeks where we really don't have, you, we, we just don't have a window to examine, to perform a neurological exam other than checking their pupillary light reflex. And then, you know, and then we, we can sort of get their lungs better and eventually successfully, you know, turn them supine and wean the sedation, but then they don't wake up. And we try to, in, in, you know, we try to investigate why. And that's why, you know, I had a question as Brian was speaking. And, and I was thinking, you know, are there, even in the lack of, you know, in the absence of large clinical evidence, are there diagnostics that we now can get, thankfully, um, that would help with some degree of, you know, on the one hand, we have prognostic humility. And on the other hand, the patients and the families are sort of left in, in a sort of left hanging. And so, you know, some of the things that I know in my, my clinical practice, you know, either the post-arrest patients or the severe ARDS who just don't have a window into their neuro exam for three, four weeks. Um, you know, I would, you know, if, if we got a brain imaging that showed large areas of um, irreversible injury in, in important eloquent areas. That would be one piece of information that could be helpful in my clinical practice, um, you know, using sort of some sort of electrophysiology, either it's EEG or SSEP that, you know, sort of help us in, interrogate the different pathways in a very crude way. And Brian can speak to that to much more um, eloquence about, you know, what we know and don't know about these pathways, but it will give us a little something about what is and isn't injured. And is there any at least overt evidence that there's been secondary brain injury that has happened 
in addition to the general critical illness, and then we go from there. All really, really important points. And then going back to what we had known about sepsis-associated encephalopathy, and then what does encephalopathy even mean? And the, the interconnectedness of what is happening to the brain, the primary neurological injury, and the secondary, the burden of secondary neurological injury, whether it's seizures, whether it's edema, whether it's hemorrhage, et cetera. And everything, to Casey's point, everything that we do as intensivists at the bedside has a consequence, has a consequence on neurological um, longitudinal prognostication, as well as this cumulative burden of neurological injury. And how do we, how do we really uh, go back to the bedside, use the, the clinician in, in each one of us to hone in on some of those, uh, you know, having, uh, Sherry, you mentioned this earlier, just having that uh, level of awareness that we've got to look out for some of these things. And then what sort of neuromonitoring should we be doing irrespective of the resources that are available? So, so many important themes and points that you have all touched upon that we could, you know, we could keep talking about, uh, about a lot of these things for a while. I do see some uh, questions about uh, promoting coma recovery. Uh, and Brian, I'll direct that to you first. And then Casey Sherry, please feel free to chime in. I, I, don't, I feel badly ending with the last few uh, answers being we don't know, but that is the short answer because it just hasn't been studied yet, uh, thoroughly at least. Um, you know, as we look to potential extrapolations from the disorder of consciousness literature in patients with traumatic brain injury and hypoxic ischemic uh, encephalopathy, the, the strongest evidence is for amantadine, a dopaminergic medication that seems to promote overall level of brain function and recovery. Uh, the most compelling piece of evidence comes from a Giacino paper in New England Journal 2012, where patients with subacute traumatic brain injury were treated between four and 16 weeks post-injury, and amantadine was shown to accelerate the pace of recovery, but patients with COVID-19 are very different. And so we are institutional practice, and a lot of it's attending dependent. I don't want to, I don't want to speak for the entire neuro-IC group here, but many of us began to administer stimulants, even while patients were still in the ICU, as long as there wasn't a contraindication from a cardiac or, or renal or hepatic standpoint. Um, and, you know, ad anecdotally, perhaps some patients responded, although without knowing the natural course of recovery, it's hard to say whether any therapeutic intervention was working or if the patient was getting better despite our interventions. But dopaminergic medications like amantadine, I think, can be considered um, other stimulants that are used in a TBI or cardiac arrest population would include methylphenidate, modafinil, um, different members of our team tried each of these meds at different points. I don't think we have enough, cert not, certainly not published experience, and even our anecdotal experience, I think, is insufficient to make a recommendation. So perhaps the only thought I would share is that I think it is reasonable and appropriate to begin to administer stimulant medications as soon as you think it's safe and there aren't contraindications or uh, risks for medication interactions, but there is not enough evidence to know when to start a medication or which one to pick. And really important point, and I didn't want to put you on the spot by giving you a question where you say you don't know, but at the same time, just like the GCS NeuroCOVID, various other international collaborations that are looking to shine more light on what does uh, COVID-19 COVID do both for our short-term and long-term outcomes? 
for Coma, there is also a similar, Brian, uh, you're also very closely involved with an international collaborative, uh, the Curing Coma campaign. And we're hoping that we're going to learn a lot more as a global community about Coma in general, and then particularly with, uh, with uh, various collaboratives, uh, such as the one that Sherry's leading about what coma and COVID-19 means. In the last few minutes, there are lots of questions uh, that I see from the audience specifically about coma in general. So I would refer you to the Curing Coma campaign uh, website from the Neurocritical Care Society uh, as well. And if you'd like to get involved, learn more, that's that's one other avenue to, to do this. Um, in the last few minutes, I'm going to ask our panelists for some um, final thoughts. So. We heard from all of you about the importance of going back to the bedside. We heard from all of you the importance of humility in general, despite all of you being so so uh, uh, incredibly well accomplished. You have all acknowledged that we just don't know and being, being open to the idea of navigating some of these uncertainties. So let's, let's start with you, Sherry. Uh, any final thoughts for, for the audience? Um, well, I, I would just want to start by thanking the audience and just looking at the number of questions that have come through it, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's been so much engagement and so much interest. And I think this is, this is where we start, isn't it? Is um, to really share the knowledge that we have. And, you know, at the same time, I think personally, I've always believed in being very open and honest about what we do know and, and all the things we don't know, and then have a plan to, sort of get at, get to, get through the things we don't know. And I think if we, if we don't know what we don't know, then, then we don't know where, then, then it's very hard to find our way out of anything. So at least we can tackle the knowledge deficit and have a plan to go forward. Then I think that would help us uh, going back to your previous question, Neha, in preparing for the future, whatever challenges uh, that might come through. Casey, final thoughts? No, I absolutely second that. I mean, I think we have just to be, you know, honest and say, you know, there are things that we don't know, but that then, you know, but the fact that we've been asking, what do we don't, what, do, what don't we know? And are we doing the best thing for our patients? I think, I think that is, I think that's the best thing that we can do as clinicians uh, for our patients and for just medical nature, you know, just medical knowledge in general. Um, you know, I, and I, th I think that's the most important. And I think also, like you said, getting back to the bedside, getting back to the medicine that we know, getting back to what we know as best practices, ADF bundles, things that are, you know, tried, you know, true, proven to reduce post-intensive care syndrome, to reduce delirium. I think those are the things that, that we know and, we, and we, we now need to just get back to. Very well said, Casey and Brian. So I'll try to finish on a positive note, which is to say that there have been so many difficult and challenging experiences for all of us, both personally and professionally. But when I think to the, the few good things to come out of this experience, I think about what Sherry has done, for example, with the GCS uh, NeuroCOVID consortium, you know, putting together an international team in the middle of a pandemic, essentially a wartime circumstance that she mentioned earlier, and then leading an effort where all of these institutions that have never collaborated before are all of a sudden on the same page, sharing data, adhering to new standards for common data elements. I mean, this is, at least in my experience, unprecedented. And you know, hopefully the next pandemic that you alluded to earlier, Neha, is very far off because none of us want to go through this again anytime soon. But I feel like this experience has prepared us as a community to work collaboratively and synergistically much better than we could have before. And thinking about how we can apply these lessons to other diseases. I mean, 
When you think about how much knowledge has been generated, the number of citations, we, there have been many references to how rapidly this literature is evolving. It's unbelievable how much we've learned, even though there are so many unanswered questions in a short period of time. So starting to think about how we can leverage these international collaborations and apply them to other diseases once COVID hopefully subsides, uh, I think is an exciting opportunity. Absolutely. And continuing to engage in these, because everything is so interconnected, learning from each other, sharing knowledge, transcending the boundaries of space and time so that we can take some of this knowledge and improve patient-centered outcomes for all our patients, not just in a specific region, but across the world. So thank you very much, all three of you, and to our audience for being so engaged and uh, sending us all your questions. The recording will be available in a few weeks on the CHEST website. And with that, have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks, Neha. Bye, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Neha. Thank you.